fall break, and for most of you who didn't even realize it was fall break and you were just doing normal life, welcome to you as, as well. We're glad you're here this morning. As Pastor Eric said, my name is Pastor Justin. Normally he does the preaching and teaching on Sundays, uh, but this is my Sunday, so here we go. Um, today we will be continuing through our sermon series, Saturate the Gospel Everywhere. We will be finishing up chapter 2 in First Peter. Hopefully you've already turned there in your Bibles. If not, look around. There's a Bible somewhere. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. That is our gift to you. All right, I'm going to pray one more time. We can never do that too much, especially when I'm up here, and we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, and we thank you that your truth doesn't just give us the, this head knowledge, but it gives us uh, instruction on daily life as well. It gives us instruction on how to be saturated by the gospel in everything that we do. Not just church, not just Wednesday nights, but it gives us prescription for daily living so that we may know how to portray Christ and portray the gospel to a lost and dying world. As we go through this this morning, I pray... Uh, for the listeners, I pray for the hearers that you would open their hearts, open their ears, remove distraction, and that you would, uh, I pray for myself as well, that you would speak through me, move me aside as a sinful man, and allow your spirit specifically to speak in this place, that it would be your words, not my opinions, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. All right, as always at Mission Church, if you haven't noticed, before we look forward, we always take a look back. We always kind of recap where we've come from so that we have a proper context of where we're going. So today, we must remo remember a few things that First Peter has told us building to this moment, okay? So today, I'm just going to warn you, it's a little more practical than you're used to here. It's a little less theological than what you're used to. Not that there's not theology in there. Not that this is not all about Jesus. But if you like sermons with handles and you like sermons where it's write these three things down, then you came to the right place today. So today will be a little bit different. But before we get to that point, we do have to look at where we've come from and where we're going. So first, we must remember who this letter is written to, right? First Peter addresses this, the first verse, to those elect exiles. That's us. We are the elect exiles. We are the aliens. We're the people that aren't from around here. We are the people that don't belong because our citizenship is elsewhere. Peter has been telling us through this whole letter so far that we are different, or at least we should be, that this world is not our home, and this is not just geographical. This is not just our citizenship is in heaven and we're on earth. This is we are Christians, and we are going to stand out as aliens, as foreigners, as people that are completely different from the world. And if we don't, we need to look at ourselves and see why we don't and why we're fitting into the culture. He has gone into practical daily ways that we can put this into practice. He has, he has looked at daily life. It is impossible to read 1 Peter and not identify with the text and say, yep, I've been there, yep, I've been there. First, we, we see... We are called to be holy. This will cause us to behave differently. If we are striving to be holy in our behavior, we're not going to act the same way as a lot of the things you see on TV, on MTV, and in social media, right? We're going to behave differently. Secondly, we are called to fear God. In a reverent way, we are to fear God more than our culture, more than the ridicule, more than the ostracism that this world offers. We are to fear God and to live accordingly in that reverent fear. Again, that will change our daily lives. That will change what we do when we wake up in the mornings. We are called next to earnestly love our brothers. This is something the world is not really good at. We're good at faking it. We can fake our love, and, and if you offer me something, then I can love you long enough to get whatever you have to offer me. But to earnestly love our brothers, no matter whether they have something to offer us or not, again, changes the way you do, do life each and every day. And then we are also called to be a holy priesthood, proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. That is definitely different than the world. That definitely sets us apart. That is the biggest thing that should set us apart. Is not just that we're living good lives, not that our behaviors are good or any of those things, but simply that we are proclaiming the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. And then last week, we discussed our everyday lives in regards to government, how we should react to government, how we should talk about government, how we should respect government, how we should live under our current government, all of those things. We should submit to government 
because God has placed those people in place. It is not just arbitrarily voted upon, but God is sovereign over everyone that is in office, whatever that office may be. So therefore, we submit to the point of not sinning. That's where we kind of left off last week. So Peter is gradually hitting on every level, and as you'll see, it keeps going. Even next week, we talk about our households, wives and husbands and children. Thank you, Pastor Eric, for not giving me that one. But it is essential to remember that it, it is impossible to read First Peter without going, yes, this is our daily lives. I, I live under a government every day. I am called to be holy every day. This is daily living, daily practical living, and it continues even today. So we are going to see how we are to let the gospel saturate our lives in a way that differentiates us from the culture. Because you see, the, the line between true Christians and nominal cultural Christians has become all too blurry. If Peter showed up to Christianity today, I, I have no idea what he might say, but I'm sure he would be astounded because it doesn't look like this. We don't look like aliens too many times. Too many times we just look like he's just kind of strange. He's just a little weird, but he'll come around. And Peter is saying, no, 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 you cannot fit in. You can't go with the tide. You can't go with the culture. And too many times we don't look any different than the people that are making fun of our faith, right? The atheists who think we're a bunch of fools for believing this, do we, in our daily life, really look different? And Peter is saying, if you're a true Christian, you must look different. This cannot be, we cannot fit in. So he gives us examples of how to do that in all avenues of life. So first, before we get too far in, let's read the passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So again, last week we looked at living as a Christian in regards to government should look like. We are called to submit it probably was not the most popular message that has ever been delivered here at Mission Church, and yet it was something we all very much needed to hear, especially in today's culture. Today is very similar. It's not going to be the most popular thing you've ever heard us say, and yet it is something we all need to hear. Now, before we get too deep into this, the very first word presents a problem, right? We need to do a, a small word study here for the word servants. Some of you, some of your uh, translations may have the word slaves, but either way in the original language it was the same word. So we need to take a look at this. Now most of the time in the New Testament when you see the word servant or slave or that, it is the word doulos. It usually means slave of Christ or servant of Christ, servant of Jesus. It is, has a connotation of ownership. We are owned, we are bought and paid for by Jesus, so therefore we live as his slaves, as his servants, in joyful submission to him out of the gratitude of him purchasing us, right? So we are owned. He owns us. He can tell us what to do, and we should joyfully submit to that. Here, the word for servants is oikos, not the yogurt. I have no idea why they call their yogurt that. Now that I know what the word means, I look at it, I'm like, what? Anyway, but the word is oikos. This word is more of a connotation of servanthood within a household. This word even also has a familial term to it, like these people were quote-unquote part of the family. Yes, they were still the hired help, but they lived in the household with them. They were paid for their services. They were allowed to eat with the family, all of these things. This is a much different word. And that's important because we have to understand that God is not pro-slavery, okay? This... I think this gets confusing because in our word, we hear the word slave and we automatically think of the civil war and all of those things, right? God is not for those things. However, slavery, masters, servanthood, earthly, did exist at that time. And God is telling us, 
since this exists, as Christians, this is how you live within that context. Okay, he is simply mitigating how, as a follower of Christ, we should live in an earthly sinful institution such as slavery and servanthood. And if we are to saturate our lives with the gospel, that means we have to saturate the hard parts, not just the easy parts, right? Not just the parts we like and not just the parts we necessarily agree with. But see, this being written at all was basically turning society on its head, right? Peter is writing two servants, two slaves. The Roman law would have never addressed slaves, would have never told slaves how to act. The Roman law would have told masters how to act. Look, they are your possession. You control them. You make them submit. You make them behave however they're supposed to behave. You make them do this. You force them to do that. That's how the Roman law would have, would have spoken to this situation, this institution. Simply to the masters. Servants just listen to what the masters have to say. But Peter is ignoring the masters here, right? He doesn't say anything to them. He's addressing the slaves, saying even when they don't deserve it, there are good masters out there. Respect them. There are bad masters out there. Respect them also. There is no distinction between the two. But this implies that the slaves even had a choice, which is pretty radical at the time because slaves weren't given choices then. Even in this context, even when they were part of the family, they were still expected to just listen to what they were told. And Peter is basically saying, look, you have a choice of whether to respect or not. And as a Christian, you must choose to do that. You must choose to submit and choose to respect them. This harkens us back to last week, verses 13 and 17. Be subject to every human institution. Uh, honor the emperor, things like that. It doesn't say honor the emperor if he is just. It doesn't say honor the government if you like them or any of those things. The exact same thing here. It does not give us that stipulation. Now, the reason I made that distinction between the words in the original language is because none of us are slaves in here, right? We <laughs> We won't ask for a raise of hands who feels like a slave at their job. I, I understand that some people jokingly say that, but none of us are owned in here, right? The closest correlation we have to apply to us in today's context is employer-employee relationships. This is not a perfect parallel, okay? You don't live with your boss unless somehow you're related to them. You don't live with them. They usually don't own you. <laughs> They're... You don't live in their house. They can, you can basically quit at any time. So there is some differences. But this is basically, in our context, how this applies, how this truth of God's Word applies to us today. So for our purposes, that is what we are going to look at. So if you want a title for today's sermon, if you like to write those things down, you can call this The Gospel at Work. How does the gospel saturate our jobs? Okay, I think this passage paints a broader picture than just the straightforward message here of listen to your boss. I do think that that is exactly what it says here. Listen to your boss, submit to your boss, be subject to your boss. I think that's included here, but I don't believe that's all it is saying. Okay, again, we went over this last week. The message is exactly the same as last week. Until it comes to a sinful matter, you respect and humbly submit to your superiors, your government and or your employer. But I think if you ask most people what the Bible has to say about their job, their answer would be not much. If I work at the dollar store, what does the Bible say about working at the dollar store? I think most people would say it doesn't really have a lot to say. Maybe there's a few verses they, they would spit out, but I don't think that many Christians would agree that it, it says a lot. I think many Christians would say that when we go to our work, unless we are involved in some form of ministry, that we should check our faiths at the door. Not that we ignore it completely and become sinful and immoral people but we just kind of leave it over there we still do the moral thing and we still internally do what is right and do what our faith says but we don't really bring it up we do all our jesus stuff on the weekends or on wednesday nights or outside of work that work and religion should be kept completely separate now i don't know if that's what you guys would say but i think if you polled the majority of christians would say something to that effect and to them, I would say, really, a third of our days as adults, essentially, if you get eight hours of sleep, I realize most people don't, but theoretically, you get eight hours of sleep, you work for eight hours, which also some people work longer than that. But again, theoretically, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, that leaves eight hours for everything else. That's a third of your days. If you start work full-time at the age of 20, which that doesn't happen anymore, does it? But 
If you work full-time at the age of 20 and only work till you are 65, again, does not happen in today's age, but just for the, the sake of this argument, if you start at 20, you work till 65, you only work 40-hour weeks, and you get two weeks of vacation every year, you will work 90,000 hours in your lifetime. 90,000 hours. To me, and hopefully to you, it seems stupid that God would call us to be on mission and leave out that big of a chunk of our lives and to just act like, well, let's just act like you're not on mission during these 90,000 hours of your life and you can be on mission elsewhere. It seems more logical to me to think that God has always and still continues to have a grand purpose for this time and a grand purpose for you in your job in those 90,000 maybe more hours. So we must consider the first aspect of work is that it is not a curse. Work is not something that is a product of the fall that we see in Genesis 3. If you would, turn with me or just listen up to chapter 2 of Genesis. So this is chapter 2, right? The fall happens in chapter 3, so this is clearly pre-fall, pre-sin. This is in a perfect world, right? Look at Look at verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Okay, then you skip down to fifth chapter, or verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So it's clear here that God's intentions we're not to make anything really happen until man was placed there to do something with it, right? It says no bush of the field had sprung up, no rain had come because there was no man there to work it. So clearly the plan was, I'll make this stuff happen when I get a worker. Then you see in verse 15, the man was created for this purpose, to work and to keep the garden. Work was not futile then, it was fruitful it wasn't so bad. It wasn't something that Adam would have complained about. Everything would have gone according to plan. It was not yet cursed. It was actually part of the curse after he sinned that God did curse his work and said, look, you're going to keep working because I made this and we're going to keep doing it. It's just going to be really hard. It's going to be toil. It's going to be labor. And it's going to seem like everything is kind of warring against you when you work the ground, when you do your job, when you do these things. So it was part of the curse. It is not the curse, if that makes sense. Work is not a curse. It was intended to be good. It was always intended to reflect God's glory. That is why Adam was called to keep the garden the way God had made it, to reflect the glory of the one who had created it. And I believe God intends the same thing for our work now. The same purpose that Adam had in reflecting God's glory in his work we have that exact same calling now. It is still God's intention to redeem work, even though, yes, it has become toil and become laborious and all of those things has come, become very hard. It is still intended to reflect God's glory. Now, you see, this points us backward to the beginning, right? This points us to, okay, work originated with God. He created it. It was good. It was not cursed. This is not, work didn't come around just because we are sinful and then it tells it also makes us look forward look look one page ahead of our passage today in first peter three fifteen. it says but in your hearts honor christ the lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect so this is saying we must always be prepared to answer the question of why we act the way that we do. So if work is not bad, it was never meant to be bad, we sinned and it became cursed, and it was made to reflect God's glory, then this is what we should be working for. This is what we should spend 90,000 hours doing, working in a way that people would ask this question. Why are you this way? Why are you working this way? Why do you respect the boss when he's a jerk? Why, why, why? All of these things. And you must be willing and able to answer that question. Now, here's the thing. I understand that probably most of us, if you're not involved in some form of ministry, you probably work, if you work, work somewhere 
that it is at least frowned upon to just walk up to random people and go, hey, do you know Jesus? I'm going to tell you about Jesus today. I know we're at work, and I know that that doesn't apply here. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus anyway. I understand. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever do that. Maybe there's a time and a place. But I understand that your jobs, most of them, wouldn't like that. I heard a story this week while I was preparing uh, about an airline pilot. He was a fervent Christian. He had just gone to a, a mission trip overseas. He came back really on fire for God, jacked up on gospel juice, whatever that means, and wanted to really share his faith at work, right? He's a pilot of a, of a commercial airline. I don't know which one, but he was all ready to share his faith. He wanted to do something for Jesus, okay? And after the flight attendants do their thing of the exits are here, nobody's listening, Pastor X crying in the back, praying because he hates flying and all of those things. Nobody's listening to anything the flight attendants have to say because nobody's going to remain calm if the plane goes down, right? So who cares what they have to say, but they have to do it. So after they get done, the pilot comes on. He gets on the loudspeaker and he says, welcome to flight whatever. My name is so-and-so and I will be your pilot today. Before we get going, this is a supposedly a true story. Before we get going, I want to ask you all a question. Even though I cannot see you by a show of hands, Raise your hand and keep them raised if you are a born-again Christian. Hands popped up over the plane. I'm sure they were very confused, but hands popped up all over the plane. They kept their hands up. Then he said, for the rest of you, I want you to think about if something were to happen today and this plane went down, where would you go after that? If you are not sure that you would end up in heaven, please ask one of these people with their hand raised. I'm sure they would love to discuss it further with you. Awkward. <laughs> very, very awkward. I understand that some of us work in a place where if we did something that way, we would not be allowed to keep our jobs. Coincidentally, neither did he. Should go without saying, we can't talk about a burning crash when we're getting ready to take off in a plane. But hey, he tried. At least he was trying something. Uh, but if our intention is to work in a way that causes people to ask that question, then we are perfectly allowed to answer that question, right? We may not be able to go and proselytize and evangelize everyone that we work with, but if they ask us a question, hey, why do you behave this way? Why are you working this way? Why this? Why that? Then we are perfectly allowed to answer. They brought it up, right? They asked us. Being respectful and working hard, though, is not your evangelism. I don't want this to get twisted today. Working hard, respecting your boss, and following what it says here in 1 Peter, that is not, not, not evangelism. Evangelism only takes place when you verbally share the gospel with someone because it is the gospel that has the power of salvation. It is the words of the gospel verbally spoken to lost and dying people that has the power to transform their lives and to save them. But, the way in which we approach work, the way in which we suffer unjustly with the harsh boss, the way in which we are mindful of God in all that we do, the way that we go about our daily lives in the 90,000 hours plus that we will be at work should lead to evangelism opportunities. We should work in a way that opens these doors because people ask this question. Again, lots of people work hard and they don't have anything to do with Jesus, right? That's just who they are. So working hard and respecting your boss is not the only, or not your form of evangelism. It is something that should lead to evangelism. So to do this, we must make up our minds that we are on mission just as much in those 40 plus hours a week as we are if we're on a mission trip. And then be prepared to answer the question when people ask why you perform this way, why you act this way, why you speak this way, why you do any of these things. The workplace has been called one of the last untapped mission fields. And Billy Graham once said that the next great awakening will happen in the workplace. Why? Because we all go there. We spend lots of time there. Everyone is there, pretty much. And we spend lots of time with the same people every single day. Most jobs, you see the exact same people at the exact same time, walking in the exact same hallway, at the exact same pace. Everything is exactly the same. Now, here's the thing. I hesitate to bring this up right now because I literally have two bosses that I currently have and one former boss that I used to have staring at me. So this is going to, we'll take it easy here, okay? 
But the fact of the matter is, if you've ever had a job of any kind and a boss of any kind, then you have had this opportunity. Unless your boss was Jesus himself, I don't think anybody here has worked for him. Unless he was Jesus himself, they have done something that you didn't like. They have done something in a way that you didn't agree with or in a way that you wouldn't have done it. They have offended you, angered you. They have done something to upset you in some way. Not you guys. Not you guys. Everyone, every other boss on earth fits this description, okay? Now, please hear me. It goes the other way, too, for employees. You've done something, trust me, including me. But those are, thank you, but those are the, glad you're listening, but those are the chances that you have had to produce evangelistic opportunities. It is when we suffer unjustly that we portray Christ. Look what it says in verses 19 and 20. For this, so it's talking about when you respect and submit to bosses, whether they are good or bad, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is when we react in a way that is totally different from the world and from our culture and from our coworkers that we are showing that we have something different in us. It is when we do the right thing and receive the wrong outcome that we have a chance to show our joy is from Christ and not from our work, not from our respect of our, our coworkers, not from the approval of our boss. It is when things don't go our way that we can react in a way that shows the gospel has truly saturated our lives, even at work, even at a place that maybe we don't enjoy going to every day of the week. See, I, I had this chance a few years ago. I was working at Best Buy, and because I had gone from complete heathen alcoholic to Christian goody-goody in a small window of time, people started, hey, you act a little different. Alcohol, do that. I acted a little differently. People picked up on it. I got to tell them that I was a Christian. Sounds promising. Sounds like I'm bragging. Slow down. I was a supervisor at the time. I had a few employees under me. I was one of five supervisors, and the company decided to downsize that role from five in each store to two. Now, the three that didn't make the, the two weren't going to lose their job. They were just going to be demoted to regular full-time employee. Their pay would decrease. Obviously, people were upset, including me. But they had some scientific, mathy way that I didn't even understand of how to choose who the two were. It wasn't based upon the coworkers or the bosses or the managers of the store to pick, hey, this is the best or this is the best. These are the two we want. It was, it was all mathematics. It was all quantitative However they did it, I won't bore you with that because I also didn't understand it. But I was complaining about it one day to my manager, basically because I knew according to this mathy way, I wasn't going to be one of the two, and I understood that. So I was complaining about how stupid this was and blah, blah, blah. And basically, he looked at me, and he, he, doesn't, he did not, does not even to this day, claim to be a Christian. And he looked at me, and he said, well, you of all people should be okay no matter what happens, right? And still oblivious to what he meant, I was like, huh? What, what do you mean? Uh, no, I won't be okay because I'm going to be one of the three. My pay's going down. I'm not going to be supervisor, yada, yada, yada. And he said, well, you should be okay because of your faith, right? No matter what the outcome is, your, your faith should carry you through. I have no idea what I said beyond that point because I felt terrible. I'm sure it was nothing helpful, nothing beneficial whatsoever. But it hit me like a ton of bricks that all I had been doing was complaining and being negative. It was obvious in those times that my job, or that my joy, did not come from anywhere different than the rest of the staff. I was complaining the exact same way the other two, because they, they read the writing on the wall too. We all knew who the two were going to be. And I was complaining along with the, the three that weren't going to make the cut exactly the same. I did not look any different at all. And I completely missed the golden opportunity to be able to witness to lots of people, not just my managers, they, them included, but my coworkers, anyone that saw the situation and saw me react in a different way, I could have witnessed to. And they would have said, hey, why are you so okay with this? Why is this not bothering you? And I could have answered with, because my joy comes from Christ, because Jesus is my example, and this is how he would react in the situation. None of that happened. So being okay wasn't my evangelism or wouldn't have been my evangelism, but it could have led to many evangelistic opportunities when people asked. And this must be in our intention for our work. 
We must view it as a mission field. We must begin, first step here in verse 18, by submitting to our superiors no matter how they treat us. This passage does not offer a stipulation or an if clause. It does not say subject yourselves to your masters if they're good ones. As a matter of fact, it even specifies that we must do this to the good ones and the bad ones. It doesn't say if they treat you right, if they commend you for your hard work, if they pay you enough, if anything. It just says do it. Submit to your superiors. Submit to your masters. It tells us blatantly to submit because God knows that many people don't like to submit even to good bosses. Nobody goes, woohoo, I get to go to work and submit to a guy that's really great to me, but I still, nobody still likes that. Nobody likes being under someone. Everyone thinks they could do a better job than their boss. Everyone thinks they know more than their boss. And whether you want to admit it, this is everyone. At some point you think, man, I could do a better job than that guy. Why did he get this job and I didn't? So why are we commanded as Christians to go against every fiber of our being, even when our masters are unjust? And it tells us, look at verse 21. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. We are called to this. This is our calling to be, to, to suffer through unjust treatment. Because our first and most important goal should be to be as Christ-like as possible in every single way. And this is what he did. This is what Jesus did. If we believe the gospel to be true, then we should attempt to live our lives like Christ every single hour of every single day. And this is how he suffered. This is not some arbitrary command that God was just going, ha-ha, I'll show them, I'll take away their fun at work, and then I'll make them unhappy with their bosses. I'll show them. It was to point to Jesus. It was to point to the way he suffered. It was to point to the way he reacted when he was treated unjustly. It pleased God when Jesus put all of his trust in his Father, even when it looked grim, even when it was far from easy, and even when he knew he was going to die for ungrateful sinners like you and me. He still trusted in the Father. He didn't pout, pout. He didn't lash out. Verse 23 says, uh, When he had committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The same applies to us. God is pleased when we suffer for his name's sake. God is pleased when we are treated unjustly and we react respectfully and humbly. It is our trust in God, not our willpower, not our I'm going to be a good employee today just because. It is our trust in God when we are mindful of God, as it tells us in this passage, that will sustain us in these times. It is our trust in God that will make all things right, that, or that he will make all things right. And it is when we trust God like our example, Jesus. It says that Jesus left us an example. So when we trust God like our example, Jesus, we will be able to submit like our example, Jesus. Then we will look at work in a whole new light. People will look at us at work in a whole new light. And again, this is not an arbitrary rule that God was just throwing out there to see if we would follow. He is giving it to us for a purpose, and that purpose is to point to Jesus. So we will have an answer to people when they ask us these questions. So I know I promised you guys some handles today, so here we go. I think the question we must ask ourselves, if we are to be as Christ-like as possible, if we are going to follow the example of Jesus, how can we work as if, as if the gospel has truly saturated our lives? In essence, we are saying, how can we work like Jesus would work if he had my job? It's as simple as that. If Jesus was employed at fill-in-the-blank, how would he do it? This is not an exhaustive list, but number one, work with excellence. Remember that you do not work for the reward of your salary or for your boss's approval or for the respect of your coworkers. You work with excellence. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. That's big. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with with a good will as to the Lord. Now I get that is easier said than done. Some days are simply better than others. Some days you go to work, you're just not feeling it, whatever that means. 
I know what it means, but I can't explain it. We all have those days, right? But if we can remind ourselves of this each and every day and pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you to a way, lead you, you can work in this way. You can work as you are working for the Lord and not for the man or a man or a woman. This does not mean we are good at everything. This does not mean you can't be honest and say, I'll gladly try that, but I don't think I'll be good at it. And then let the boss make the decision of whether he wants you to try it or not. But this does mean that whatever you do, agree to do, that you do it to the best of your ability. And even if it fails, and even if you look like a total idiot at the end, you can look back and go, I tried my best. That was the best I had. I may have made a mistake. I may have made the wrong decision, but it was with good intentions. I was trying my best. Number two, if Jesus had your job, he would work with integrity. As you are working for the Lord, do so with the utmost integrity. Do so above reproach. 2 Corinthians 8.21 For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. 1 Peter 3.16 This is the verse right after be prepared to answer the question when they ask you. And it says, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Work in a way that if people come and say, Man, I saw Justin doing this the other day, that the boss is going to go, No, you didn't. That's not, that's not who Justin is. That's not how he works. That's not what he would do. I'm sure most of you have heard the saying that integrity is what you do when no one is looking. I would agree with that for the most part. So how do you work when no one is standing over you? Do you follow through with what you say? Matthew 5 tells us to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Can people trust you? If you tell them, hey, I'll do this, do they go, hopefully that'll get done? Or do they go, that's... That's out of my mind because it's going to get done because he said or she said he's going to do it. Can people trust you? Do you reply to emails and phone calls when you say you will? Do you get jobs done under the deadline of whenever you said you're going to get them done? This is working with integrity. Remembering we are working for the Lord who, by the way, is always looking. So integrity is doing what's right even when God's looking, I guess. But even when it may go unnoticed, even when your boss may never notice that you did a great job, your coworkers may never pat you on the back, are you still doing things with excellence and with integrity? Thirdly, if Jesus had your job, he would serve others. We should never, ever utter the phrase, that's not part of my job description, or they don't pay me enough to do that. We should never, ever say those things. We should be willing to go out of our way to help others. We should be willing to do the things that no one else is willing to do. Volunteer to clean the toilets at work one day and see how people react. See if people don't ask you, uh, what are you thinking? Like, that's not your job. Why are you cleaning the toilets? Answer, because Jesus. He, he would serve others. Because of Jesus, I will serve others. Mark 9, 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark 10, 45, this is at, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the God of the universe in, in earthly form, right? The equivalent of cleaning toilets in biblical times is washing people's feet. Because where does all that stuff from, that we have a toilet for go on the ground? They walk. I don't know if you know this. They were wearing sandals, not Nikes. So it got all over their feet, right? Jesus is washing their feet. So we should be doing everything as Christ would do them. If the gospel saturates our lives, it touches every single part. We must be willing to serve in ways that look weird and that others are unwilling to do. And we should never say it's not part of my job because it is, because you're working for the Lord. Number four. If Jesus were to be employed where you were employed, if he had your job, he would show grace to others. This is easy, right? When you're wronged, you don't hold a grudge. When somebody does something wrong to you, you don't try to get them back or, or lash out, right? It's the easiest one. Probably the hardest one, but what did Jesus do? He forgave when he was wronged. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? This is the biggest wrong that's ever been, or been committed in the history of time. And Jesus is saying, forgive them. So remember, we have been forgiven much, so we also can forgive much. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let, everyone, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This may be the one that makes you stand out the most. When you overlook, when people talk about you, cut you down, lie about you, keep you from getting a promotion because they've told the boss something that isn't true and he believed it, these, this may be the one that makes you stand out the most. When you give grace to those people and say, I understand I was wronged, but Jesus forgave and I'm going to forgive. People are going to think that you're extremely weird and they're going to ask you the question of why you reacted this way. Now please hear me. I understand these are not always easy, but we must let the gospel saturate our lives and in so doing, we can't exclude the one thing we spend our, the most of our time doing. And the thing that we identify with, when you meet someone, what do they say? What's your name? What do you do? So if it's that important that it's the second question that most people ask you, we can't exclude this from the gospel saturation that we were talking about in 1 Peter. So if you want further handles and you're asking yourself, well, how do I do this specifically? So in closing, I'm going to give you some practical ways to make your work your mission field. I can't tell you specifically at Walmart, you go to aisle 7 and do, I can't do that. But I can be very specific. So here are a few things, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few things to get your mind working to understand that these things will make you stand out. Number one, get to work early. <laughs> I know I just cursed to most of you. Get to work early and pray for yourself, pray for your coworkers. And ask God to give you opportunities to evangelize. Ask God to give you opportunities to share Christ with someone that day. If you want to use names because you have someone in mind, go ahead. If you don't have anyone specific in mind, just pray that God would open a door with someone so that I can share Jesus with them. Number two, practice sharing the gospel in 45 seconds or less. That sounds funny, I understand. But being missional is one thing. Stealing from your employer by wasting, wasting, by using 30, he would look at it as wasting, but by using 30 minutes of time that you were paid to do a job is another. So practice doing it in 45 seconds and then sum it up with, I would love to talk to you about this further. Can we do it over lunch? Can we do it after work? Can we do it at this time when we're not on the clock? Those things like that. 45 seconds or less. Piggybacking off of that, eat lunch with people instead of by yourself. Remember that evangelism is essentially doing life with gospel intentionality, right? It's just going about your day, doing the things that you are called to do, that God has led you to do, whether it be your job, your family, sports, recreation, any of those things, class, school, any of those things, but doing those things with gospel intentionality. Get to know others, listen, truly listen to their stories, and then speak the gospel into those stories. Number four, be an encourager. When someone does good work, tell them, hey, great job, dude. Great job, sister. I don't know how girls talk. Whatever they say. Great job, you. Leave them notes. This is kind of girls, but guys, you can do it too. Leave them notes. Leave them cards. Tell them, hey, I saw what you did yesterday. You did a great job. That presentation you gave today made perfect sense. I got it. Good work. Know people's names. This is kind of a big one. When new employees get to your job, introduce them to the people that you already know. No, everyone knows how daunting of a task, especially if you work at a big corporate office like Fruit of the Loom or something like that, going in and not knowing anyone, not knowing where anything is. Where's the copier? I don't know. Oh, we're out of paper? I have no idea where the paper is. Introduce them to people. Tell them their names. The new, the new employees, tell them the old employees' names. And then say, hey, come to me Anytime you need anything, I promise I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll help you out. If you need paper, if you need to know where the bathroom is or whatever, come to me and I'll help you. Number six, when people say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Guaranteed, everybody that has a job where they're going tomorrow, somebody's going to say this. Oh, well, hey, did you have a good weekend? What'd you do this weekend? Don't leave out that you went to church. Say, oh, man, I went to church if you went here, you can tell them whatever you want about me. It was awesome. It wasn't awesome. Whatever. But say, we learned this. We discussed this. Whatever it may be. Then say, hey, did you go anywhere? If they say no, invite them here. It's very simple. Ask seven. Number seven. Ask people how you can pray for them. 
then if they let you pray for them out loud, yes, out loud, you have to pray out loud, pray the gospel over them so that they hear the gospel. They don't just hear you praying, oh God, please heal her broken arm, yada, yada, yada. Pray for the broken arm and then pray that God would save them through faith in Jesus because that is the only way that someone is saved and I pray that, the, that Mary is saved because of her faith in you. And if she doesn't have a faith in you, I pray that you would give that to her now. Pray the gospel out loud. They will hear it. They will hear the words of the gospel. Number eight, build relationships outside of work. This is obviously dangerous if you're married to do with the opposite sex. I get that. But males and males, females and females, or a group where it's, it's mixed. But build relationships outside of work. Be generous with your time. Coffee, dinner, organize a get-together. If somebody's birthday is that day, hey, we're staying after work for 30 minutes just to wish so-and-so a happy birthday. We got a cake. We got bring the cards, whatever. Number nine, this one is huge. Do not gossip. This may include you not gossiping, but some of you go, well, I don't really gossip. I just listen to the gossip. This may include you walk away from conversations where gossiping is taking place, and you don't go, I can't be a part of this because I love Jesus. I got to go. That ain't going to work. But if you say, if you just relieve yourself from the conversation, people are going to start to notice. You know, I never see Mary gossiping. I never, she never knows anything about anyone that's negative. They're going to start noticing. Number nine, or no, I'm sorry, number ten, this is another big one, no complaining. I understand complaining needs to happen at times. That's why you have a husband or a wife. That's why you have a friend that does not work there. A trusted friend that you can go to and say, look, I just got to get something off my chest. I'm not saying complaining is always wrong. Complaining at work almost always is. Unless you're going to complain and then go to the boss and say, here's the changes that I think we should make. Respectfully and humbly, I'm submitting these to you to see what can, we can do about them. But if you're not really looking for change, you just want to vent, it's usually not upbuilding for anything. And Ephesians tells us, let no corrupting talk, let nothing that is not good for building up come out of our mouths. And number 11, this is, uh, this is geared more for the college kids, uh, young adults, I don't know the college people we have in the room, but this also could apply to literally anybody in the room. Some of you may have not settled on a major. Some of you may have, and that's fine. But why not start now before you have started a full-time career asking God, how can you use my education? How can I begin praying now that you would use my education and my talents that I have and that you're, you're leading me through for the kingdom. For instance, God, how can I use my degree in business in a nation closed to the gospel? You see, God may be calling some of you to get a business degree so that you can open a business in Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Yugoslavia or Russia. You know why? Because they don't allow Christians to just come up in there and go, hey, I'm planting a church. We're going to have church here next Sunday. Woohoo! They're not letting us in. But if you go, hey, I'm planting a business, it's going to make you money, it's going to help your taxpayers, it's going to do this, they'll let you in, even if you're a Christian, they don't care. It makes them money. It gives them a service. So why not ask God, are you calling me away from America to an unreached or an unevangelized area of the world to use my degree for your kingdom? I'm not saying he absolutely is to everybody. I get that. Not everyone is called to that, but you may be. Or if you're not in college, I'm looking at you all, maybe you are too. Maybe that's where your business should be instead of Memphis or St. Louis or wherever it is. Just a thought. Okay, this is not an exhaustive list. Hopefully this has got your brain moving, giving you some ideas of how you can stand out at work, how you can be gospel-saturated at work. You see, it's not just the pastors or ministry leaders that are called to work unto the Lord. And as a matter of fact, for people involved in ministry, we probably see a lot less lost people than you do because of the nature of our jobs. We, at, at the very least, we are exposed to a lot less people, and we, you are exposed to a lot more people that we never have any contact with whatsoever. God placed you there for a reason. It was not to collect a few dollars and retire. You are just as called into ministry as anyone in this room. Understanding that Jesus purchased with his bearing our sins on the tree that we see here. He purchased our whole lives, not just the parts that we give to him on Sundays or Wednesday nights or any of those things. 
He bore our sins so that we may live to righteousness in every aspect, in every hour of our lives, not just the ones reserved. Jesus bore our sins on a tree. What better news is there than that? There is no better news that God, through Christ on the cross, bore our sins. So why not live that way throughout the week? So when you get bad news, hey, I've got the best news possible. Why don't we live like we truly believe that in a way that begs the question, and then when we tell people that it is Jesus, that we have lived in a way that makes it believable? See, the last verse in chapter 2 here says that we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd of our souls. So may we live Monday through Saturday as though he is our shepherd, that he is leading us no matter where we find ourselves, but that he is the shepherd of our souls. He is, the gospel has saturated our lives in a way that we can't let go of it no matter where we are, no matter what we are doing. Let us pray. Father, I, I thank you that work is not a curse. Even when it's tough, even when it's hard, that you created it and that it was created to reflect your glory. And I pray that each and every person in here, whether they have a job now or will have in, a, in the future, that they would use their work to reflect your glory, to show your glory to a lost and dying world. We are surrounded by lost people in our jobs every single day. May we not be afraid to tell them the truth. May we not be afraid to tell them why we are the way we are or we do the things that we do. Not because those things will save them, but because you will and you have saved us. Not because our behaviors save us. Not because our hard work saves us. Not because respecting our boss saves us. But that because we are saved, we do all of those things. That we submit to you first and then out of submission to you, out of love to you, out of gratitude to you, we then submit to those you have placed in our lives above us, whether it be the government, whether it be our jobs, whether it be within our own families, but that we would submit to them as we are submitting to you. And through that, may it lead to many evangelistic opportunities. May it lead to many people asking us, What's up with you? Why are you different? Why do you do these things? And we can answer back, only because of Jesus. I'm only generous because of Jesus. I only do this because of Jesus. I only do that because of Jesus. Do you know this Jesus? And I pray that everyone in this room does. I pray that everyone in here has a relationship with you. And if they do not, I pray that they don't leave this place until they have spoken to someone about that and that you would save them. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. And I thank you that it speaks to us in our daily lives. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.